So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Danny Postel. I'm the, as Lorena mentioned, the Assistant Director of the Center for International and Area Studies at Northwestern, which includes, by the way, it's a center that includes multiple uh, programs and academic units, including the Latin American and Caribbean Studies Program, otherwise known as LACS, L-A-C-S, and the Middle East and North African Studies Program, the MENA Program. So how appropriate then to have a panel discussion this evening on the global wave of mass protests that will touch on both Latin America and the Middle East amongst other regions as well. And how appropriate, as Lorena suggested, that we should have this panel discussion today on Martin Luther King Jr. Day when we considered that as Harvard political scientist Erica Chenoweth and her co-authors on a recent article put it, we may be in the midst of the largest wave of nonviolent mass movements in world history. That was just a few weeks ago that they wrote this article. Again, that we may be in the midst of the largest wave of nonviolent mass movements in world history. From Hong Kong to Chile, from Lebanon to India, from Iraq to Colombia, from Algeria to Argentina, from Iran to France, from Sudan to Haiti, from Ecuador to Guinea and beyond. Protest, as Serge Halimi wrote, uh, recently wrote in Le Monde Diplomatique, protest is the new normal. And yet, there's a paradox. We're confronted with this odd juxtaposition of this mass wave of protests around the world simultaneously with another global wave that we're living through, namely the rise of authoritarian populism, right-wing parties and movements around the world on the ascendance. Viktor Orban in Hungary, Modi in India, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Erdogan in Turkey, Salvini in Italy, Duterte in the Philippines, Sisi in Egypt, and lest we omit ourselves, Donald Trump right here in the United States, and this is just to name a few. So how do we make sense of this apparent paradox that we are living simultaneously in an age of mass nonviolent protests for social change, popular uprisings around the world, and at the very same moment, a resurgence of right-wing authoritarian populism, or what some political scientists have called a new wave of autocratization, how should we understand these momentous global developments? Are the various protest movements around the world connected somehow? If so, what are their common features and through lines? And at the same time, what are the specific dynamics and characteristics that make each case distinct? Now, we can't address all of the aforementioned countries in a single panel discussion, but we will examine six of them at the very least. Lebanon, Hong Kong, Chile, India, Iraq, and Iran. And to do so, we have an all-star dream team panel to help us do that. And I will introduce them briefly in alphabetical order. Lubna Elamine teaches in the Department of Political Science just down the street at Northwestern. Her first book, Classical Confucian Political Thought, A New Interpretation, was published in 2015. She's currently working on a second book, tentatively titled status and membership in the ancient Confucian political community. Lubna was born and raised in Beirut and went to college at the American University of Beirut, the AUB. 
In addition to her scholarly work, she frequently writes uh, in both English and Arabic essays on issues like Lebanon and the Arab world, on being Muslim in Trump's America, the title of one of her essays, Hoping Against Hope, a perspective on the U.S. elections from the periphery. Are democracy and human rights Western colonial exports? Question mark. To know her answer to that question, you'll have to read the piece. Daniel Borzutsky teaches in the Latin American and Latino Studies program and the Department of English at UIC, the University of Illinois at Chicago. His 2016 poetry collection, The Performance of Becoming Human, won the National Book Award. His most recent publication is titled Lake Michigan. It was published in 2018. He serves as the Intercambio Poetry Editor at Chicago's Make, M-A-K-E, Make Magazine, and is also an artistic director of the Lit and Luce Festival, an ongoing collaboration between writers and artists from Chicago and Mexico. You might have seen his New York Times op-ed titled Chile is in Danger of Repeating Its Past, which came out on November 1st. An excellent piece, I might add. Kave Esani teaches in the Department of International Studies at DePaul University. He is co-editor of the book Working for Oil, Comparative Social Histories of Labor in the Oil Industry, published in 2018. He has been a contributing editor to the journal Goftogu, which means dialogue in Farsi. That journal is based in Tehran. He's also been a contributing editor to the Middle East Report, published by Merip, the Middle East Research and Information Project, and to the journal Iranian Studies. His research focuses on the historical sociology of warfare, the politics of property, land use, and water, the urban process and spatial change in Middle East cities, and the political economy and geopolitics of post-revolution Iran. William Hurst teaches in the Department of Political Science at Northwestern. He is the author of The Chinese Worker After Socialism, published in 2009, and Ruling Before the Law, The Politics of Legal Regimes in China and Indonesia, published in 2018. He is the editor or co-editor of three books, Laid Off Workers in a Worker's State, Unemployment with Chinese Characteristics, 2009, Local Governance Innovation in China, Experimentation, Diffusion, and Defiance, published in 2014, and most recently, Urban Chinese Governance, Contention, and Social Control in the New Millennium, published in 2019. And last but not least, Shelja Sharma teaches International Studies, Critical Ethnic Studies, and Global Asian Studies at DePaul University, where she teaches courses on migration and forced migration, identities and boundaries, cultural analysis, and comparative literature. She is the author of Postcolonial Minorities in Britain and France in the Hyphen of the Nation State, published in 2016. By the way, there are several seats still back here in this part of the room. Um, and she is the co-editor of New Cosmopolitanisms, South Asians in the United States, published in 2006. She authored a recent op-ed in the New York Daily News titled, In India, Citizens Are Rising Up Against Hate, another piece that I highly recommend. 
and that speaks directly to this evening's discussion. So let me just finally say that the Center for International and Area Studies at Northwestern is absolutely thrilled to partner with the Evanston Public Library on this program. Um, the, the, the format is essentially the following. Each speaker will have approximately 10 minutes for their opening remarks, and then we will go to audience Q&A. So please uh, join me in welcoming this all-star panel uh, this evening. I'm speaking about Lebanon. I was trying to decide how it's very hard because one can go back in history and all of that. So I'm actually going to keep it simple and just keep it about the protests. And if other questions come up, um, if questions come up um, in the Q&A, we can address uh, the earlier history. Anyway, so protests in Lebanon started on October 17. So they have been going on for almost 100 days now. They are the longest and biggest such protests in Lebanon's history. Um, at their peak, so at the very beginning, probably around the first week, they drew around 1 million people. Le the Lebanon's population is around 5 million, so we're talking a fifth of the population going down the streets. That's a huge number. Um, other than size, the other remarkable feature of the protests is their cross-sectarian aspect. They were self-consciously cross-sectarian, uh, cross and I'll say something about sectarianism in Lebanon in a second. But basically, uh, one remarkable feature of them is that um, uh, protesters in Sunni cities, say like Tripoli in the north, were explicitly chanting slogans in solidarity of, with, um, uh, with Shia cities in the, in the south and, and, and vice versa. Now, um, let me say something about what prompted the protests. So they basically were prompted by attacks on uh, WhatsApp, the app right, on the phone. So not uh, the most obvious uh, calls for revolution, but that's what happened. Um, I mean, it was basically the straw that, that broke the camel's back. So this is, um, it just says something about the Lebanese economic uh, system and um, the, what, the, the, what that tax was doing. So basically, um, the, the Lebanese economic system is highly unequal, highly dysfunctional, and it had been going down, it had been weakening for the, for the few months before the protest. So basically the tax was just part of, it was one measure among others by the government to just shore up its revenues, right, to deal with its public debt problem. The debt in Lebanon, the, it's around 150% of the country's GDP. Now it's a, like um, lots, uh, most of the tax in Lebanon is actually consumption taxes, so a value added tax of that kind, and, and WhatsApp is one of them. So these are regressive taxes, right? And so they, they basically affect everyone equally. And it was really, given how unequal the system was, given that the solution was to tax everyone the same on WhatsApp, right, like using that, um, it was just seen as like a bit too much. Like you're not going to solve the problem by taxing, um, you know, WhatsApp in this way. So it brought down people on the street and uh, the protest continued. Um, now, again, one of the major uh, demand of the protesters is to improve the economic system. Um, I'm just going to say a couple of words about that and move to the issue of sectarianism. So since uh, the Lebanese civil war ended in 1990, since then the government has been borrowing very heavily. And the, the, the crucial part about the Lebanese borrowing is that it, uh, the, the government borrows from, from local sources, from, from banks in, within Lebanon. Um, and they borrow using uh, on the basis of very, very high interest rates. So the, the government issues loans, issues um, easiest government um, bonds that the, that the commercial banks buy at very high interest rates. 
And the, the crucial aspect here is that these interest rates are not high just out of market demand and uh, supply forces. They're high because basically the politicians who are in government are also have stakes in the government. So they have an interest in having the interest rates being high because they make a profit out of having the government borrow on these interest rates. right? So the system um, really sort of pro profits this, this sort of political economic class, if you may. Now, this also means that the most successful economic sector in the, the most successful sector of the economy is the banking sector. The banking sector is owned by, you know, there's a few small banks that um, have been lending the government. They're making huge profits out of it. And because it's so profitable to lend the government on these rates, they don't really invest in much other things. So the idea that, they, that any, any of their profits are trickling down, right? There's no, there's no sense that it is, right? Um, and so it's best basically meant that the most of this, m most of the profit is made by a few banks, not getting to anyone else. It's also meant that the government has spent most of its revenue trying to pay the interest on the debts that's incurring towards those banks, meaning that it doesn't have much money to invest in anything else. Um, and I'm, when I'm saying not invest in anything else, so obviously sort of anything related to uh, welfare provisions, but I'm really also talking about basic infrastructure. Um, so there's no 24-hour electricity, 24 electricity in Lebanon, anywhere in Lebanon. Um, Beirut, you get uh, usually 21 hours. Um, some areas of the country get 12, right? So we're talking basic infrastructure that's not there, no water. Water has been an issue. Trash caused a protest a few years back. So basic infrastructure is not being provided, and that was sort of one of the main spurs of the protest. The other thing I wanted to mention is this sectarian aspect that I mentioned briefly before. So, and again, I'm going to be brief on it just to not to go back too, much, too far in history, but happy to answer questions in Q&A. So the, the way the, the, the political system works is based on this kind of power-sharing agreements between sectarian leaders. It's a balancing act that's been going on since the Lebanon's founding. It was reinforced in many ways after the Civil War. And so you have po politicians who represent these various sects who basically are in government in various ways, and they gain support from members of their sect by basically a certain kind of a clientelist network. So they distribute public posts to members of their own sects. And we're talking public posts, um, you know, not just sort of, um, you know, we're not just talking about key posts that get distributed to members of the sect. We're talking to th things like the Lebanese uh, university, say this is the public university. The, f the deans of the colleges in the Lebanese university are assigned on the basis of their allegiance, of, the, of their sectarian belonging, but also their allegiance to the, to the leader of that sect. So uh, everything that's a government position is really apportioned on these kinds of bases. So the sectarian leaders gain support of, the, of their members of their sect by these, uh, by, uh, these kinds of clientelist networks. Uh, they also constantly raise the sort of the specter of other sects winning out, right? They raise the specter of the war and all of that, and therefore they can shore support from their members by kind of constantly um, sort of uh, raising the specter of other sects winning out more than them. Um, so that's been so one of the main demands in the protest has also been sort of some way to deal with this system, right? Um, that's basically. Uh, that's basically been really only shoring up those particular elites who are benefiting from it, but not, uh, but not the, the 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 people, right? And so these claims that I'm the these slogans that I mentioned earlier, cross sectarian slogans during the protests, we're really trying to say, look, like we're all losing out from this, right? The poor are losing out, whatever their sects are. The only people benefiting are these leaders of these sect sects, these politicians. 
So these are the causes of the protest. Uh, the only thing I, was, I just wanted to say is that, um, so the protests have waned, and, well, had waned in the past month or so, uh, because the government resigned and there's been um, attempts to form a new one. There's been a new prime minister has been appointed. He's supposed to form a, we call it a technocratic, like an expert government, right? It hasn't been formed. Um, the recent um, sort of the, uh, the American assassination of, of Soleimani um, has caused some issues that can't complicated things further because it strengthens the hand of Hezbollah in many ways um, and sort of also makes the, the shuffling of the government kind of more, more complicated. So all to say is that they're forming the government in the same way that they were forming it before the protest happened. So it's not like, a, it doesn't seem like anything has happened, which has prompted protesters to come back down on the street for the past week or so. And uh, it's been a bit more controversial recently because given that we talked about nonviolence, um, there's been more um, disruptive tactics, let's call them that, uh, let's call them that. Mostly the, the protesters have been going to banks when they're closed, so there's no one in there sort of uh, destroying the facades and the signage on banks and all of that. There's been some kind of, so there's been more, um, more um, you know, there's been like cutting down some trees or whatever. And then the government, uh, the, the army forces, the police have been, an have been answering using um, some rubber bullets that have been causing uh, some, some uh, injuries. They've been uh, using tear gas. It's also causing injuries. And so this weekend has actually seen the height of sort of actually more, um, it, there's been more injuries since the past uh, uh, three months of the protest. And it's unclear where it's going to go, but there's less protesters, but there's been more, uh, again, um, they're using more disruptive uh, sort of techniques and kind of causing a bit more um, divisions about what's, what to think about what's going on and where it's going to go from here. I'm going to end it here. Good evening. Uh, thank you all for coming. Thanks so much to Danny and um, the Center at Northwestern and the Evanston Public Library. Um, as Danny mentioned, I am a um, I, I am a poet. I am also a translator of Spanish language and poetry, including writers from Chile. Uh, and I write about and publish um, Chilean writers as well. I will conclude um, with a um, brief new poem uh, by a Chilean poet written in response to the uh, recent events. Um, so I will give a little bit of, um, I'll talk about what's happening now as well as give some background in history too. So as many of you know, at the beginning of October, protests in Chile broke out after the government announced that they were going to raise the price of metro tickets by about 30 pesos for a few cents. So similar to the tax that um, we just heard about in, on WhatsApp. Uh, there was a common sign at the demonstrations and a chant that was heard in the aftermath. It's not about 30 pesos, but rather it's about 30 years. In the first few weeks of the demonstrations, there were millions of people in the streets. 
those continue, demonstrating peacefully for the most part, though it has to be said that there were also non-peaceful demonstrations that were responsible for severe damage, including the burning of metro stations, uh, vandalism of banks and, and other commercial properties as well. Uh, the peaceful demonstrators have sought to distance themselves from the non-peaceful ones, yet the government and right-wing opposition have sought to conflate the two. Um, returning, uh, Danny mentioned the article I published on November 1st in the Times, and at the time that I wrote it, there were starting to be quite a few news stories about the demonstrations in Chile, but there wasn't a lot of coverage of the violence at the hands of the state. My friends in Santiago were writing texts and emails and social media posts presenting a situation that sounded desperate. The police were regularly shooting protesters. The police were being accused of torture, rape, and sexual abuse. There were people who were being killed and reported being disappeared. Appeared. This wasn't being covered until that moment. Uh, for many, this sounded like a throwback to an earlier time, the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet, which lasted from 1973 to 1990. And the government's rhetoric in the wake of these protests was also reminiscent of the Pinochet years. Immediately after the first wave of demonstration, President Sebastián Piñera declared that, quote, we are in a war against a powerful enemy. He and many on the right tried to link the protesters to global anti-capitalist movements and to claim that they were working alongside of agents from Venezuela, Russia, and Cuba, a kind of Cold War fear tactic that, they would, that would have been used under the dictatorship, in which many people continue to think uh, is the case. Thus, in order to understand the protests of today, it's important to go back not just 30 years to 1990 uh, or the end of the dictatorship, but to go back to the 1970s. I'll try to do this quickly. Uh, so, as is commonly known, in 1973, Pinochet, with the support of the U.S., overthrew the democratically elected socialist government of Salvador Allende. Under Pinochet, there was brutal repression of political rivals, with thousands killed, tortured, disappeared, imprisoned, and exile. Under the shock of Pinochet's repressive tactics, a series of extreme capitalistic reforms designed by Milton Friedman and the University of Chicago economists were implemented, which included mass privatization of public schools, the private of social security, the destruction of labor unions, and economic deregulation, which has led to mass consolidations of wealth. In 1980, Pinochet rewrote the Constitution to solidify these policies and to make it impossible to change the Constitution without a congressional supermajority. So that kind of directly speaks to why we're in the situation we're in now in Chile, because they haven't been able to change the Constitution. Thus, in 1990, when the dictatorship ended and the transition to democracy began, despite the fact that there were many center-left and left uh, uh, presidential administrations, the 1980 Constitution made it impossible to do anything major to change the economic model. Thus, with the end of the dictatorship then and the transition to democracy, the brutal repression of the dictatorship ended, yet the economic policies of the di dictatorship remained in place. And I think that's also precisely what is happening right now. It's also important to note that when Pinochet uh, left in 1990, so he left in 1990, in 1988, there was a plebiscite, a yes-no vote, uh, where the citizens were asked to decide whether or not they wanted elections or if they wanted him to continue in office. Uh, that was approved so that there would be elections, but only by a very small majority, something like 52 to 48%. So again, it speaks to a country very divided. Uh, there was great support for the right and its repressive tactics as well. Uh, nevertheless, as the transition to, to democracy began, the political repression of the dictatorship ended, 
yet the economic policies remained. Uh, for example, the privatization of public schooling in Chile has resulted in a system where over 70% of students go to private schools. People get vouchers from the state to pay for private schools. That used to be a popular idea in the U.S. that they wanted to do that. Uh, but those vouchers aren't enough, and so families end up in debt not to pay just for university, but also for elementary and high school. Uh, another major issue is the privatization of pension funds or social security, which was privatized under the dictatorship, continues to be privatized. Uh, essentially, um, people um, don't get state pensions and they pay into pension funds uh, and the pension fund administrators uh, make a 25% commission on people's um, contributions. Imagine in the US people freak out if it's more than two or three percent, right? So 25 percent, that estimate might actually be low. Um, at the same time, wealth has been consolidated. The richest one percent in Chile, by some accounts, own up to 33 percent of the country's wealth. The paradox of Chile has been that unlike other countries in Latin America, there's been an influx, influx of great wealth into the country, and there's been both a rhetoric and a vision of Chile as being more stable and perhaps more egalitarian. It's thought to be the so-called tiger of Latin America for its stable economy. But in reality, it's been clear for a long time that the health of Chile's economy has meant the wealth of the elite at the expense of almost everyone else. People have been promised access to wealth, but they have no means of attaining it. As a result, faith in political institutions has declined dramatically. I just read a, this uh, kind of survey today that came out uh, saying that people have about a 3% faith in the Congress, 5% in um, municipal governments, 14% in the church. So uh, there is no kind of faith in the stability of institutions to cause change as well. Uh, so this sets the stage for what begins in the fall of 2019. The chant, it's not 30 pesos, but 30 years, refers to 30 years of failed policies and promises in the post-dictatorship era, which began in 1990. And many have argued that the distance from the dictatorship has made possible the protests that we now see. In other words, Chileans in their teens and 20s don't feel the legacy of violence and fear that older Chileans experienced during the dictatorship. And thus, they have been more willing to take to the streets. And indeed, Chileans of all ages have participated in forms of social activism and political organization that has left some people feeling quite optimistic about the possibilities for change. The demands have been economic, including wage and pension reform, and political with calls for a citizen-led assembly to create a new constitution. Friends in Chile remark on what we might call the intersectional solidarities that have emerged. For example, older people on pensions feel quite grateful to young people for taking to the streets and fighting on their behalf. Uh, in terms of numbers, the weekly marches in Santiago and else in Santiago get up to millions of people sometimes, a half, uh, and elsewhere throughout the country, the numbers are quite high. Uh, there have been a series of what have been called cabildos, or community meetings, where people have come together to discuss public policy, politics, and the possibilities of constitutional reform. Uh, and these have been held by different constituents. Uh, there's been artistic activism, most famously the feminist collective Las Tesis, which created the song and dance performance Un Violador en Tu Camino, The Rapist in Your Path, which we're now seeing performed all over the world, including in protests and rallies in the U.S., while we haven't witnessed any major changes to the economic model, there's now widespread acknowledgement that the economic model has failed and that social demands are legitimate. Uh, and in November, there was a plebiscite, so the um, protests forced 
has forced a vote, a plebiscite, to decide on whether or not to hold a vote. So there's a vote on whether or not to hold another vote. Um, on whether to enact constitutional reform. This next vote will be in April of this year. There will be two questions on the ballot. The first will say, do you think we should rewrite, we should write a new constitution? Yes or no. The second will say, how should we rewrite the constitution? It gives two choices. One, a citizens assembly with a um, 155 people elected, uh, non-government officials elected to represent uh, and to rewrite the Constitution, or a mixed assembly, which would be half uh, citizens and half congressional representatives. So we'll see what happens in April. I suspect the, cons the, the, the first, uh, the citizens' assembly will win, um, despite the fact that the right maintains a severe opposition to any of these reforms. They don't want to reform the Constitution at all. Uh, so some significant change has occurred, socially, culturally, politically. Eventually, there will be legislative change. It will occur in the form of a new Constitution, but that's going to be painfully slow. And in the meantime, there has been extreme violence at the hands of the state, which makes it hard to reconcile the fact that on the one hand, there's a movement towards greater democracy in the form of the new constitution and this constitutional assembly. And on the other hand, there have been massive human rights abuses committed by the police and military, who we can say are defending the interests of the elite, of business owners, of people with money, power, and resources. At the end of 2019, reports by Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch confirmed what many already knew, that the abuses were widespread and systemic. A report published just a few days ago from the INDH, the National Institute of Human Rights in Chile, summarized the data around these human rights abuses. There have been about 1,500 official complaints. 190 of them have been of acts of sexual violence, 412 of acts of torture or tratos, tratos crueles, cruel behavior, 842 of excessive force, almost 3,000 have been wounded, including 269 children or adolescents. Um, there have been 405 ocular wounds. This has become a kind of symbol of what has happened in Chile because so many people have gotten their eyes shot. Essentially, the police have been using these um, rubber bullets or uh, buckshot, they call it, uh, and there was an idea that they were supposedly not very harmful, but they're clearly shooting from close range and taking people's eyes out, uh, and the number of eyes that are getting shot out in Chile um, is like greater than in many years-long conflicts. So that essentially is kind of where we are at. Uh, there's massive human rights abuses. There's ha human rights abuses happening alongside of mass mobilizations and hopefully a road to, um, to having a new constitution. Uh, I will conclude. Um, so as I mentioned, I, I work, so I've worked a lot with a Chilean poet named Raul Zurita, uh, who uh, was born in 1950. Um, uh, during the dictatorship, on the day of the dictatorship, he was arrested uh, and imprisoned um, for six weeks. His poetry after that has, has in many ways been about the process of seeing your country destroyed. He is um, one of the most well-known poets in the uh, Spanish-speaking and Latin American world. Uh, and I've translated a few of his books. I haven't translated this piece in writing, but I'll do it um, now. It's a, a poem that has been recited a lot at the, po at the protests in Chile. It's called Venceremos, Venceremos, Venceremos. We will win, we will win, we will win. Y nos abrazaremos llorando, and we will embrace each other crying. Y nos Estaremos cantando, and we will brace, embrace each other singing. Y mis ojos serán tus ojos, and my eyes will be your eyes. 
Y todo Chile será tus ojos, and all of Chile will be your eyes. Y tus ojos ciegos, and your blind eyes. Amor mi, mío, niña, niño mío, my love, my girl, my boy. Serán un país alzándose, serán un cielo alzándose, serán miles de puños alzándose. There will be a country um, raising itself. There will be a country rising up. There will be a sky rising up. There will be um, thousands of fists raising. Y nuestros ojos serán tus ojos, and our eyes will be your eyes. Clearly thinking of all the eyes that people who have been blinded and had their eyes shut, shut out. Y todo la patria besando, and all of the country will be kissing. Tus ojos ciego, your blind eyes. Besaré el cielo que te impidieron ven, ver, and we will kiss the sky which they uh, don't let you see. Uh, we will kiss the sea, the rocks, the beaches, que te negaran, negaron mirar, which they prevented you from seeing. Y todo Chile será tus ojos, and all of Chile will be your eyes. Y levantándose de tu luz, tus ojos cantarán con mis ojos, y nos abrazaremos llorando, y nos abrazaremos cantando. Uh, and as we raise up, rise up, uh, um, it will be your light, your eyes will sing with thousands of eyes. We will embrace ourselves crying. We will embrace each other singing because they blinded us. They broke us. They killed us. But we will win. But they did not defeat our embrace. I will. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming out. Uh, when Hong Kong reverted to Chinese sovereignty um, and British colonial rule ended at midnight on July 1st, 1997, that occurred under the guiding principles of the so-called Sino-British Joint Declaration, which had been concluded and promulgated in December 1984. The, that joint declaration established the foundation of what has become known as one country, two systems, under which Hong Kong is part of China, but retains a very high degree of autonomy over most of its affairs, uh, up until at least 50 years after the handover, that is July 2047. That foundation for the new sovereignty arrangement in Hong Kong after 97 sounds like a contradiction, and indeed that tension has proven to be the source of a great deal of political contestation almost since the moment of the handover itself. In 1989, mass protests in Victoria Park and elsewhere, I'm sorry, 1999, uh, mass protests in Victoria Park and elsewhere throughout Hong Kong to mark the 10th anniversary of the June 4th crackdown across China uh, against popular protests in June of 1989 uh, provoked a backlash uh, from parts of Hong Kong society against aspects uh, of the way that the central state was administering its relationship with Hong Kong and deeply unnerved a lot of core central leaders in Beijing. Just a few years later, 
In 2002-2003, the passage of several pieces of legislation in Hong Kong, the so-called anti-sedition laws, uh, were seen by many Hong Kongers as an infringement upon rights of free speech and other protected freedoms that they thought at least were protected uh, under Hong Kong's basic law and its distinctive legal system. The central government strongly advocated for these laws to be passed and openly pressed the Hong Kong authorities not only to pass them but to implement them. Mass protests resulted, the laws were withdrawn, and the chief executive's administration in Hong Kong faltered and ultimately had to turn over to a new administration as a result of this. Later, as we move forward in time uh, across the various years, there are a number of additional incidents in which uh, protesters in Hong Kong have turned out in order to resist aspects of what they see as creeping homogenization with the rest of China and an erosion of aspects of Hong Kong's legal and political system that they hold very dear. Notably, in 2012, mass protests erupted throughout Hong Kong against the practice of so-called parallel trading or parallel shopping. This is a practice under which many visitors from the mainland of China visit Hong Kong, come to Hong Kong, in order to purchase goods that command a significant price premium in other parts of China. Everything from iPads and infant formula to designer clothes that frequently are deemed by consumers to be not necessarily genuine articles when purchased elsewhere in China, uh, or that have pre-installed malware on them, uh, are, you know, many consumers will seek out the Hong Kong versions of these products and pay a substantial premium for them. Certain products are also cheaper in Hong Kong uh, than elsewhere in China due to the separate tariff and trading regulation systems uh, that Hong Kong enjoys. But the influx of parallel traders has meant that commercial rents have increased dramatically, throughout much of Hong Kong's key uh, shopping districts, uh, and it has meant that certain stores are simply inaccessible to most consumers. For example, the Apple store uh, in central Hong Kong routinely is the busiest Apple store on earth um, and is almost impossible to enter uh, unless you're willing to queue for hours uh, well before opening on many days. Uh, and so Hong Kong consumers uh, reacted against this with protests uh, against the parallel traders. Some of those protests unfortunately took on rather jingoistic and biased tones um, and attracted a fair bit of counter-protest uh, from mainlanders residing in Hong Kong uh, and others uh, who objected to that unfortunate turn of tone. In 2014, a new wave of protests erupted uh, when many young people in Hong Kong wanted to demand uh, electoral reform uh, and the imposition of one person, one vote, and universal suffrage for legislative and executive position elections. Those protests became characterized in some of the English language media as the so-called umbrella movement. Um, kind of odd name for it, but... Um, they lasted for quite some time, several months. The Occupy Central movement did succeed in occupying key thoroughfares in Central. And the basic issue was that the protesters wanted to preserve and advance 
aspects of democracy in Hong Kong that they saw as being under threat. The outcome of the protests eventually was that they were put down. Several key leaders were uh, arrested, tried and convicted of various offenses, and very little happened in terms of actual electoral or other political reform. Later, uh, in 2016 and 17 and 18, uh, new waves of protest erupted over things like the kidnapping of the Hong Kong booksellers uh, who were spirited away into the mainland uh, in very dubious circumstances and then confessed to various offenses while there uh, because they were purveying books that were objectionable in the view of the central government in Beijing uh, but that were protected uh, under sort of freedom of publication and speech rules in Hong Kong. Um, also, the construction of the train station uh, that would provide a direct high-speed train link from Hong Kong to various points in the mainland proved very controversial because an immigration post was set up there uh, for mainland authorities to conduct immigration checks, but the entire floor of the train station on which that post uh, is located is legally now under the jurisdiction of mainland Chinese law, not Hong Kong law. And mainland Chinese police have at least theoretically the power to arrest suspects, uh, people suspected of violating mainland law uh, on that floor of the train station. That is, for example, rather different from U.S. preclearance posts in Canada and elsewhere uh, where there are signs informing you uh, that the U.S. immigration officials do not have any kind of jurisdiction uh, to arrest or detain anyone uh, and can only refuse entry to the United States, you can always walk away, you're still in Canada. That's not the case, at least in its basic foundation at this checkpoint, uh, and that provoked a fair bit of protest as well. So you can see for almost the entire 20-year period since the handover up until the latest wave started, 21 years, uh, there was this sort of brewing tension between elements of Hong Kong society who saw all of the special political status as being consistently eroded and undermined, and the central government that was very concerned that Hong Kong not move further away from homogenization with the rest of the country. The Hong Kong government generally fell in line with the central government, but was profoundly ill at ease in the middle of this sort of two-way tension. Then in 2018, a case erupted. A young couple from Hong Kong visiting Taiwan as tourists uh, was visiting Taiwan as tourists. While they were there, uh, the boyfriend killed the girlfriend, uh, murdered her, and then fled back to Hong Kong before he could be arrested in Taiwan. Hong Kong had no legal provision to extradite him to Taiwan to face trial. And so in February, I believe it was, of 2019, Legislative uh, Council in Hong Kong introduced a piece of legislation to allow for this kind of extradition. Now, of course, cross-strait situation being what it is, you couldn't have a provision to extradite suspects to Taiwan and not to the mainland. And so it was construed broadly such that Hong Kong citizens could be arrested and extradited to face trial for offenses uh, committed in or under the laws of either mainland China or Taiwan. This is what touched off the latest round of protests. Protesters from organizations, notably Demosisto and others, that had been established in 2014, turned out in large numbers in March 
in order to protest this new law. They felt, rightly or wrongly, and there's a lot of debate in Hong Kong legal circles over just how much this fear was justified, that this would open the door to randomly having people arrested for offenses that were not crimes in Hong Kong and then taken away to the mainland and subjected to criminal punishment there. The protests began to spiral, as I said, from March. By June, they became very, very large. Something like one and a half to two million people turned out for the largest ones in June. Hong Kong has about seven and a half million people resident there. Um, so a very, very large proportion of Hong Kong society participated in those protests. At that time, they were still nonviolent. They then began to escalate around, right around the time of July 1st, the anniversary of the handover, uh, when protesters began to occupy violently um, key government buildings and installations, notably LegCo, the Legislative Council, uh, Hong Kong's Parliament Building, and some other key roads, installations, the tunnel entrance, and so on, over the course of the, the rest of the summer. These building occupations then were sometimes combined with vandalism, uh, and then in reaction against this, various other groups mobilized against protesters, both police and uh, these so-called thugs, uh, the, the white-shirted uh, brigades uh, in different places who would turn up and beat protesters pretty violently. Prior to the building occupations, the police had been accused widely of brutality as well by the protesters, although the, their tactics clearly stepped up after uh, this occurred uh, at the airport, at the Legislative Council, and elsewhere. And so after this wave sort of began to subside slightly uh, in the summer, uh, then the government did give in to one demand of the protesters. The protesters by July were articulating five key demands that they still maintain. Number one uh, is withdrawal of the extradition bill. Uh, number two is, uh, well, they don't necessarily list them in this order, but second is uh, amnesty for the protesters so far arrested. Third is an open investigation into allegations of police brutality. Fourth is to stop classifying the protests and the protesters as riots and rioters, which the government insists on doing. And then finally, the resignation of Chief Executive Carrie Lam and the electoral reforms demanded in 2014 for universal suffrage uh, for both the executive, uh, Chief Executive and Legislative Council members. The government in September withdrew the extradition bill. It has steadfastly refused to accede to any of the other four demands. And so in September, and especially around October 1st, China's National Day, students and others began to mobilize strongly again, uh, this time in increasingly confrontational and violent ways. Uh, occupations of government buildings, sieges of police stations, uh, of transportation bottlenecks, and then the occupation of university campuses. Two in particular, uh, Hong Kong Polytechnic and Chinese University of Hong Kong, were occupied by students uh, for upwards of a week. And students faced off with police using petrol bombs, uh, bows and arrows, actually, uh, all kinds of other projectiles, uh, and just straight violence. Police also responded very violently. Uh, by some measures, more tear gas has been discharged in Hong Kong over the last six months. Uh, or so than in the rest of the world over the previous 10 years. 
Um, I don't know if that's a fully uh, reputable claim or a tremendous exaggeration, uh, but there are some who have claimed things like that, and certainly there is thick smoke of tear gas in much of the city much of the time now. Um, the protests seem to die down after the campus sieges were broken in November. Now they're starting again after the new year uh, with large marches uh, in central Hong Kong. And so where does this leave us? It leaves us basically with a decision point at which the government in Hong Kong uh, and the central government in Beijing are going to have to either accede to more of the protesters' basic demands, probably the last one, and maybe amnesty for those arrested. I doubt very much uh, that they'll pull off uh, the others. I also don't think it's very likely they'll accede to either of these uh, other demands that, that are on the table. Uh, but the electoral reform or, or anything beyond withdrawing the law, which they've already done. But that's one possible choice that might defuse some of the protests. Another would be a crackdown, uh, which no one wants. Even Xi Jinping certainly does not want a, a crackdown in Hong Kong and the violence uh, and sort of mass reaction that that would entail. And the third is what the state actually has been trying to do up until now, which is to respond in a way that they see is proportional or not even quite proportional, to exercise a fair degree of restraint while still responding forcefully, and then, no problem, uh, and then uh, to wait out the protests. This is essentially what worked in 2003, it worked in 2014, and they think it's going to work again, or they're betting it has to work again. So far it isn't working though. The protests keep coming back and they keep getting more intense in each wave, at least the first three of the nonviolent protests from March through June, the more violent and confrontational protests of July through October, and then the current beginnings of a new wave that seems to have started after January 1st. So we'll see where this goes. Uh, one way or the other, it does appear, though, that Hong Kong is at a critical juncture, unlike any it has faced so far since 1997. And what happens over the next six to 18 months is likely to set the course uh, for further developments there for quite some time. Thanks. Hi. Um, it's always a balance to try and decide how much background versus how much analysis. So I'm going to minimize the amount of background I give you on the Indian protests in favor of actually talking about what's, you know, who are the, who are the people protesting and what are they asking, and then some projections in terms of what I think might happen. And if people want more background, I'm happy to uh, take that up in the Q&A. Okay, so unlike in Hong Kong, um, the protests in India didn't build up slowly over time. Um, on the 10th of December in 2019, the ruling party, the BJP, the Bharatiya Janata Party, um, rushed a bill called the Citizenship Amendment Bill. It was called CAB. When it became law, it was called the CAA. Um, they rushed it through both houses of parliament. There was no debate. Um, the president uh, signed this bill at midnight uh, on, uh, I think, the 11th or the 12th. And what this bill did, it is it amended a citizenship, um, 
the original citizenship bill of India of 1954, and it amended it in a way which gave a fast-track citizenship to refugees and immigrants from areas in South Asia, from other countries in South Asia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Nepal, Bangladesh, um, to everybody except to Muslims. So it fast-tracked citizenship for people of all faiths except for Muslims. Um, this happened 11-12, the bill was signed into law. On the 14th of December, the first protest was held in New Delhi. So you can see it was really fast. Uh, it wasn't planned. It wasn't led by any political party. So I'll come back to that in a second. But first of all, who are these people who are protesting? Right? Um, this, we're talking about a country that's 80% Hindu. Right, and 20% are various minorities of that 20, you know, of, of those 20, 14%, almost 15% are Muslims. So you would expect that a lot of the people protesting would be Muslims, but that's not true. There have been protests by left parties and by students, so you'd expect maybe a lot of these protesters were students or traditional left parties. That is also not true. Um, it's, instead, you see a lot of small groups um, who don't form uh, traditional allies or alliances amongst themselves coming out to protest. So there are people who are untouchables, there are upper caste people, there are civil servants, there are students, there are um, professors, there are um, unemployed people, there are people from Muslim areas in Delhi, there are people from other areas in Delhi um, going to protest, sometimes foregoing, you know, a day's daily wage to actually show up and ask for this act to be repealed. So the intensity and speed of the reaction to this act was a surprise to many people in the government and media in India. Um, India is most famously the country with the so-called demographic dividend, which means that the majority of its population is between 14 and 65, which are working um, age uh, demographics. So the expectation is that with that demographic dividend, economically India will do very well. Um, and uh, the government in the 1990s had made this deal with the population which said, you know, in return for jobs and glitzy washing machines and cars, um, the population would sort of keep its head down and work and not protest against the growing authoritarianism in India. Um, but that promise never quite worked out. And India's economy actually is being downgraded by Moody's, by the IMF. Um, um, and what the government has tried to do is, through this act and other acts, that it's trying to sort of change the political infrastructure of India and build discrimination against minorities into the legal, educational, and constitutional system in India. Since what the BJP is doing is a political agenda, uh, it's a very ideological agenda, these protests are also not so much about economics and very much about ideology and very much about politics, right? And the surprising thing is this sort of broad coalition of people who are showing up to protest, because as I said, India is a country that's 80% Hindu, right? Um, 
but the government bet on that majoritarian sort of you know constitution of the population to push these bills through and they've been really taken aback by the fact that people are not actually um you know acting out their identities in this political sphere that they are coming out for other people okay um so the caa this act is part of three acts that the bjp wants to pass um one is called the caa one is called the nrc the national register of citizens where they're going to count the citizens in a, in order to find out what religion they are and then the national population registers the npr which is about you know so so what it is is they're going to first figure out who belongs to which religion and then delegitimize the citizenship of people that they don't find are truly indian and that indian citizenship is going to be counted in terms of religion so that's the plan it's not just one act but one of three and at the end of it about 15% of indians will be declared non citizens of india and will become stateless so and it's very clear that our home minister the secretary for interior uh, in american terms has said that that's what they're going to do um so th- this is the reason for the protest this is the reason why citizens are coming out not just in big cities like delhi and bombay and chennai but also smaller towns like lucknow like ilahabad like you know all these small in in mangalore which is a, a city on the western coast of southern india um there was there were 300000 people who showed up for a protest this past sunday now yes india is much more populous than lebanon or um you know um uh, hong kong but even for india these are really large numbers to the protest i went there were children um as young as 7 years old um this little muslim girl came up and said you know i went to school and i got into a fight with my classmate and she said um you aren't indian you're a pakistani and you don't even belong here and just to have a 7 year old child sort of talk about her experience in school and she was really embarrassed about talking about this because she felt you know why would people be interested in this and the whole crowd sort of stood up and cheered for her it was an amazing moment um anyway so i'll just sum up some things about the people who are showing up for these protests that i think are interesting a the protests are very spontaneous it's not led by any political party even though political parties are trying to harness this energy um indians are very cynical because both main political parties the indian national congress and uh the bjp um have been involved in um interethnic and religious violence um from 1984 to 1991 in bombay to 2002 in gujarat you know so there's been a real pattern of using that kind of violence for electoral gain um so an extremely diverse group of people um including a large number of muslims including a large number of students um but 
very diverse in terms of religion, age, background, and origin. So this profile has made it very hard for the government to push back because they don't know which buttons to push in order to divide this group, right? Um, at first, the BJP tried to say, oh, you know, these, uh, these are all Muslims. So they said, you recognize these anti-national elements by the clothes they wear, right? But actually, people started showing up, you know, wearing the caps or, you know, wearing T-shirts saying, I'm wearing the clothes, recognize me, right? <laughs> so it was really interesting. Um, and then... Um, they tried attacking universities. They, you know, uh, the police entered universities, threw in tear gas, uh, grenades, you know, uh, trashed the libraries, um, beat up uh, students. Um, and then people started showing up and collecting outside the universities in order to uh, prevent the police from doing that again. So it was really inspirational. One of the places that's been really central to inspiring people to protest is in a very poor area on the outskirts of Delhi called Shaheen Bagh. So Shaheen Bagh is an area, it's a, it's a new, what's called a colony, which means neighborhood. Uh, it's on the side of this big drainage ditch that you know goes through the colony. And this is the place where Muslims from uh, about 300 kilometers out of Delhi, east of Delhi, is a place called Muzaffarnagar, where there were anti-Muslim, um, there was anti-Muslim violence um, in um, 2014. And the people who were attacked were mostly uh, farm labor, unskilled farm labor. And they fled from that area because essentially they were not allowed to come back. And they fled to this area called Shaheen Bagh in order to earn a living plying rickshaws and you know doing daily wage labor. Um, some women in Shaheen Bagh decided to come out after the CA uh, bill was passed and hold all night vigils, you know, in support of people who were protesting. So this is mid-December. Between mid-December and mid-January, these protests have been joined by so many people. You know, um, almost one, 150,000 people have been showing up every weekend. Uh, a lot of students, a lot of women, it's utterly safe. What the government tried to do was say that every person in those protests had been paid $500 by the opposition <laughs> to show up. And what the crowd did is, you know, they welcomed. They said, we asked the prime minister to come talk to us if he thinks we've been paid. Then the government sent in police to snatch away food and blankets because it was very cold in Delhi, um, you know, during December and January. And what the crowd did is they brought food and they invited the police to come eat with them and said, are you cold? Do you need blankets? Here, have some. So, you know, this kind of thing has been going on. It's very exciting. It's the, this protest is very nonviolent. It's, um, you know, really fueled by art and poetry. Um, poetry that comes from Pakistan. You know, there's this one song called Ham Dekhenge that's been like a um, slogan for the whole movement. And it means, we shall see. Right? It's a challenge to the government. We shall see. And um, there's no, you know, they've borrowed um, um, that song from Chile. Uh, they've borrowed um, 
the slogan called azadi from kashmir which is another area that's been you know really um manipulated by the bjp government so uh, the chance when you go into a protest is azadi 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 which means freedom right so people are essentially asking for freedom from their own government this is what is happening in delhi um so now the indian government is like oh, you know first this denied that these protests were happening and then with social media and pictures you know that was not possible um then they tried sending in the police um that rebounded on them because people now can take videos everywhere and they showed you know um so they have as you know william you were talking about in hong kong mm-hmm. there are a couple of choices that uh the state uh has um they can respond with force with the numbers that i'm talking about that's going to be extremely difficult um they can roll back the caa um which they have sort of repeated time and again they're not going to do so it's highly unlikely they can make symbolic concessions to the protesters um so far nothing is being talked about so i don't know what they would concede and then they can wait and hope that this fizzles out because it doesn't have proper traditional leadership um or the alternative is that these protests could grow and become even larger and even more diverse um and eventually this government will fall so we shall see <laughs> Last but but not least, our final uh, panelist before we go to the Q and A will be Kave Esani from DePaul University. Thank you. Um, well, uh, my good friend Danny, uh, thank you very much for organizing. Uh, thank you all for coming on this cold evening. Um, Danny was very optimistic. He asked me to talk about what is going on in Iran as well as Iraq. and i sort of laughed and i said are you joking or what and he said no no i'm very serious and he gave me a, a kind of a synopsis of what i should say because that's what he would say and he would you know he's very good at this uh, i said yes yes and i'm going to ignore him uh, i will i will talk about iran because in 10 minutes 15 minutes whatever time we have i think that's complex enough uh and what Uh, and you know in the uh, Q&A uh, i think certainly what's going on in iraq uh, is uh, equally important and very significant in fact it's uh, you know uh, having heard all these uh, previous previous uh, presentations i think all of us are kind of realizing that this is a coordinated well not coordinated but a uh, concerted um uh you know wave of popular protests and you know um obviously the cases are very different histories are different contexts are different but um they are about moral outrage at uh what the states are doing uh and their moral outrages at uh the state of economy and inequality um and senses of injustice uh that's kind of animating all of these and what i fear i mean that's it's heartening to hear shall just say uh you know that okay you know these things haven't turned protests haven't turned violent in uh, in india yet uh but my fear is and as i will talk about iran a little bit is that violence is the response of states 
uh, you know, to, because they, what do they do? You know, what does violence do? It actually, um, uh, it outrages, uh, outrages the, the protesters, but it masculinizes public spaces where people are trying to kind of bring in street politics, democratic street politics. It militarizes it, it masculinizes it, it kind of uh, pulls out, you know, the, the, the whole diversity, uh, you know, that kind of uh, uh, brings a moral component with it, and it actually kind of creates solidarities. Uh, and this is what we, what we see, uh, for example, in the Middle East, throughout the Middle East. <clears throat> the disastrous um, wars in Syria, um, you know, uh, and in Yemen, are the direct consequence of uh, autocratic regimes responding to uh, the Arab Spring. Uh, in the case of Iran, and you know, popular movements from below to democratize uh, and um, kind of make uh, responsive and answerable uh, their own oligarchic and increasingly corrupt uh, statesmen and, um, and ruling classes. And the same thing certainly holds true for Iran. Um, so, What's going on in Iran? Uh, obviously, I'm sure people have concerns and questions about the uh, the military confrontations between U.S. and uh, you know and Iran. Uh, you know, there's war pending on all of us. Uh, situation in Iran is dire. Uh, you know, just to kind of but to just kind of review very quickly. Um, in December, um, there were mass protests in provincial towns and smaller cities in Iran uh, when the price of gasoline was suddenly tripled by the government. Um, now, these protests were put down quite violently, and we still do not know uh, the number of uh, protesters who were killed. The numbers vary anywhere between 200 to 1,500. This was a shock, because although the Islamic Republic of Iran is not a particularly kind and gentle uh, state. Uh, nevertheless, uh, you know, this, this kind of repression um, <laughs> against protests, street protests, had been unprecedented on this scale. Uh, and the reason is uh, quite clear. I mean, like the Iranian revolution, and this is something I'll come back to um, a couple of times, uh, the Iranian revolution of 1979 uh, was basically a moral protest of, uh, of the periphery, of provincials, uh, against a perceived corrupt, hyper-centralized, uh, westernizing monarchy. Uh, and therefore, you know, like street protests have been part of the political repertoire of Iranian public since 1979. I mean, I remember in a few years ago, I don't know, 2005 or something, I was giving a talk in Montreal, um, and there were similarities uh, with, you know, with today. And what I had to say is that, look, uh, just looking at the paper reports, uh, you know, in Iranian press, the previous week, the week before I, I, <clears throat> I was giving this talk, there were three major protests, one in northern province of Azerbaijan, where, you know, these uh, conscript soldiers who were from the sect, uh, Aliullahi, you know, this uh, mystic sect that kind of uh, keep long hair and especially facial hair, very ample mus mustaches, uh, you know, the you know, their officer had forced them to kind of shave off their mustaches. And this had caused an outrage. And suddenly on this border town with a foreign country, you know, in a very kind of a serious 
you know, era uh, in 2005, you know, war in Afghanistan, war in Iraq, you know, like U.S. had military bases everywhere, you know, like axis of evil. I mean, this was a very, very tense time like it is now. In this border time, you know, all these villagers from this sect had picked up their guns and gone and attacked, the, you know, this border garrison uh, to demand why did you shave off the mustache of our, you know, young boys, uh, you know, who are kind of conscript army, you know. Um, same time, you know, in other cities, there were kind of equally very different protests, you know, against, you know, outrage, you know, out by outraged citizens over, for example, uh, the state confiscating their mopeds because they were polluting and, you know, uh, and so on and so forth. The point I'm making is that street protests and, you know, have, have been part of the repertoire of, of Iranian politics since 1979. And although they were repressed, but nothing on this scale. And the reason of the scale of repression was that, well, the people protesting were actually uh, the rural provincial poor who were supposed to be the foundation and the whole basis of the Islamic Republic. This, let's remember, this, I mean, like, you know, it's always very frustrating to kind of talk about Iran in the United States because it's always about, you know, the representation is that this is a theocracy. It's the, you know, rule of clerics and, and all that. And you always have to say that, yes, yes, but there are all these other components. People didn't fight for religion because religion wasn't being taken away from them. It was a, um, you know, a moral uprising in um, 1979 to actually kind of bring, domesticate modernity, if you want, you know, development. And that's why post-revolution Iran, despite all this kind of like bizarre, uh, and religious tinted politics has been a development, developmentalist state, right? I mean, it has tremendously invested, even during the wartime, even during sanctions and all that, in building infrastructure. So, you know, like the vast majority of population is, uh, you know, educated. Higher education is widely available and women form like 60% of the billions of people who graduate from universities every year. Uh, you know, the, there is gas and energy kind of delivered to remote rural areas and so on and so forth. And this has become part of the political fabric of uh, and expectations of citizens who've sacrificed so much, you know, during the war, during the revolution, uh, during all these periods of economic hardship. And this is what they expect as their citizenship rights. And it's these people who were kind of repressed quite brutally by the central government in December of 2019. And, you know, as kind of like the whole system was in a shock, trying to figure out, okay, what happened? You know, why, why, did, why did this happen? And, you know, some grumblings began to kind of be uttered in the parliament and elsewhere. And, you know, Qasem Soleimani, the, the general, uh, Iranian general, was assassinated by uh, Trump administration in Iraq. And... Very quickly, uh, this kind of created obviously a tremendous fear and of of war, um, and also its consequences, and you know what what the reaction would be, and uh, as I'm sure most of you have seen, the you know the funeral of Soleimani was kind of quite shocking in terms of the number of millions of people who kind of poured out in the streets, in these smaller streets, and and they were very kind of very selective places that. You know, their bodies were taken, the, those who were killed, you know, and, and, you know, so, and those were the provinces where the government is, you know, it, his native province of Kerman, but also these other provinces where there was a lot of uh, sympathy and, uh, and support for, for different reasons that I can go to during the Q&A. 
but the interesting thing is that the people who came out, just by the virtue of the geography of where these, you know, these protests were taking, I mean, these funeral participations were taking place, were the same people who had protested, probably, the same social classes, the poor, the, the marginals. Uh, the people who had been kind of pushed to the to the brink of destitution by the sanctions, by you know economic political corruption, uh, they were the ones who kind of came up to came out to kind of uh, be present in the same streets for the funeral of Soleimani. And in some ways, this kind of re-legitimized a regime that was really in a state of crisis uh, for its foreign policies as well as its domestic policies. Uh, but very quickly after that, as you saw, the Iranian uh, military shot down the Ukrainian airplane. Uh, it withheld information. Uh, you know, it didn't own up to it, that what they had done. And uh, they tried to get away with it, but it was eventually revealed that, you know, it, you know they had shut it down. And this created a huge uh, moral outrage at, you know, at, at, uh, at a government kind of being incompetent. Um, uh, killing innocent people, uh, but then not taking any responsibility. And we had another wave of massive protests that are kind of taking place in uh, various places uh, now. And the slogans for the protests in 2016, as well as the current protests, are much more radicalized than previous protests have been, you know, in the over the past uh, 20, 30 years. And they kind of directly challenge the legitimacy of the military, of the leader, of its competence, of corruption, um, you know, uh, of its foreign policy, you know, so like often slogans are that, uh, you know, uh, Gaza, Lebanon, forget that, you know, our problem is in Iran, uh, you know, um, uh, the military is corrupt, the leader is supporting them, and so on and so forth, right? So what to make of this? I mean, you know, the, you have, uh, we have massive protests against uh, uh, inequality, against corruption, against the, you know, the, the austerity measures uh, in December, and then very quickly the same people come out, you know, the same chunks of population in, in massive numbers come out to support, uh, you know, an assassinated general who was like a pillar of the system that they're kind of objecting against, and then again, you know, it turns back against, uh, <coughs> you know, uh, against the uh, you know, the, the tragedy of shooting down a, a civilian airliner that was flowing from their own airport, you know, within five minutes, that, you know, like binoculars would have helped to kind of look and figure out this is an airliner, right? Um, but even more kind of uh, uh, paradoxically, um, 2017, a mere two years ago, Iran had an election where about 68 to 70 percent of the electorate voted for the current government of uh, Hassan Rouhani, the president, right? This is much higher than participation rates in the United States, right? Uh, for, you know, uh, either congressional or uh, presidential elections. So this has been a very important feature of Iranian politics. Participation in elections, not because people, by and large, have any illusion about, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, the parliament, the local councils, or the president can solve all their problems. But this is actually perceived as a way of expressing what the population wants. If you're, if you live in a small provincial town, you're in a rural area, this is the person you're, 
local representative is the person who can speak for you in terms of allocation of budgets or projects or so on and so forth. It's your voice, and people are vested in it. At a national level also, you know, this has been a way of really kind of challenging uh, an establishment which is kind of a very kind of a complex establishment that is very autocratic on one side, is theocratic on one side, you know, the rule of the generals and, and clerics, and then quite elected and representative in a very limited way, but in a significant way, Republican on the other side. So this is how this regime and system has kind of survived, you know, by kind of combining these two aspects, a Republican representative electoral aspect, um, as well as uh, the other side, uh, you know, which is kind of, you know, the, the Islamist side. Um, will elections, which are on the horizon in two months, um, attract the population now that the sacrifices that came with signing the nuclear accord with the United States have been scuttled? Now that uh, the foreign policy of this government has been kind of really thrown into question after the assassination of Soleimani, but also like near warfare with the United States. Uh, the state of inequality in Iran is actually quite shocking now. And this has a lot to do with a number of things that I can't, you know, I can't go into. But um, basically since like uh, the turn of 20th, 21st century, all the oversight institutions uh, that have been set up, uh, governmental institutions that have been set up to kind of actually figure out and bring in accountability for how money and wealth and the economy is functioning. All of them have been more or less dismantled by, you know, and this really kind of accelerated during the period of previous president uh, Ahmadinejad. Uh, and, you know, uh, the no, no conservative United States policy of regime change in the region played a huge role in kind of legitimizing this dismantling of, uh, of, of oversight uh, institutions. So we have a crisis in Iran uh, that is multi-layered. Uh, it's very domestic, but it's also international. These protests kind of bring all of this together. And uh, I think they're becoming, they will become um, uh, more widespread because that's part of the politics, his, history of politics in Iran, you know, these, this kind of street politics. Uh, but, you know, increased violence by the state, and especially um, considering the threat of warfare, international warfare, kind of hangs over this. So um, I have no idea what will happen. And if anybody, you know, has, takes a guess, I think, you know, I, I think they're charlatan. I mean, how, how can you say? I mean, like, how will Trump react? How will the, you know, the inflexible an increasingly corrupt and isolated leader in Iran kind of react. Um, um, so it's a, it's a very kind of a disturbing period, um, but it is hopeful because of the agency of, uh, of these, you know, worldwide protests. You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner? 
email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com. To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com, or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com. Thank you.